um, who to give a loan to from a bank, who who to you know um, to welcome in our neighborhood and not right. You by taking a stance of I'm not one of those people who do those bad racist things. We don't see how we learn how to become racist through our socialization, and I think the terminology more so is the concept of white supremacy. We are all trained in our socialization to to see whiteness as supreme. Um, when we're young, we're taught that white is associated with light and brightness and beauty and goodness and virtue. And think how we learn about which is the opposite, blackness. It's dark, it's vile, it's scary, it's, it's shameful. So, and that's just a very, like, there's so much done on this, this topic. I'm just really touching at the surface of it. But we're socialized to believe that whiteness is better than non-whiteness and, and the, the extreme opposite is blackness. And so to answer your question, when we take that stance that only bad people do racist things, we then don't see how racism is embedded in everything we do, um, every, every ideology that, or not every, but certain ideologies that we embrace, um, and how we ourselves can be complicit in perpetuating racist thoughts, ideologies, and treatment towards other people. Anti-racist is about understanding that and living with purpose to say, you know what, I don't know what I don't know. But you know what, I'm okay to be uncomfortable learning and stepping into how I might have been complicit, what I might have learned in my socialization, and I'm going to be purposeful to change it because I know the harm it does. So it's about acknowledging the existence of systemic racism, which we've heard some politicians and some high-up officials say that they don't believe it exists, such as white, um, some people don't believe white supremacy exists, some people don't believe uh, white privilege exists. When you take a not racist stance, you ignore how white supremacy, how uh, white privilege, and how systemic racism actually is embedded in everything we do in our society, and really is on which our society is based and continues to, to flourish for some and to you know, uh, prevent a lot of, um, how do you say, bad stuff for other folks. Um, so, being anti-racist is about acknowledging that and stepping into it and wanting to change it very purposefully. Does that help to explain it a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think what's, you know, it's an interesting, what, what's interesting is that language is important and it's, and it's a, and a, often it's the first step towards learning something new. Yeah. Um, but it can also be, it can also be a, a chasm and particularly when age comes into play. So, you know, I don't even understand half the things my daughter says anymore. <laughs> um, you know, so it, it becomes harder and harder as, as you get older to, to, to know the right terminology, even if your intention is in the right place. Right. You, you know, I, I would be just as guilty as anybody to innocently say, I'm not racist because of course I'm not racist, but that's not, that's not the intention. The intention right. is for me to say, I want to do things that proactively make changes in society. And as an organization, we want to do those things. But um, right. it's very easily, it's very easy to fall into the trap, partly simply because you just don't know the term, the, the terminology. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes that becomes, uh, that becomes a barrier, because it can be a fear. I don't want to, if I write the wrong thing, or if I say the wrong thing, even with all the right intentions, it can yeah. be misconstrued and I can, and then, 
and then, you know, I, I come off looking worse than had I said nothing at all. Right. So I think instead of worrying about intentions, be more purposeful about, you know, learning about unlearning. So for example, if we start to change how we look at racism, not just about like bad people do racist things. Yes, there are bad people that do racist things, but there's also a lot of us good people that do racist things, right? Um, and I say us meaning, you know, non, well, white, white people. Let, let's just put the terminology out there, right? Because if you really understand racism, you know that um, black people can't be racist towards people um, or other black people. We can have, and, and there are going to be people that dispute that. Um, we can have prejudicial, uh, we can be prejudiced uh, towards people, um, even people like ourselves. We can be discriminatory, but we cannot be racist because racism, in racism, there's power social power, whereby if I hold prejudicial or discriminatory attitudes towards someone who's white or who's, you know, not white, I don't have the power based on my gender, based on my race and anything else like social identifiers to be able to prevent you from achieving success or material possessions as a result of my prejudicial discriminatory um, notions towards you or treatment towards you, right? So we really need to start to understand these concepts differently than how we were raised. It's no longer just about not being good. If we understand racism as something that we're socialized into to embodying, and, and really go deeper than that. It's really about, as I indicated before, understanding the concept of white supremacy and its polar opposite uh, anti-black racism. So that's why you hear these terms a lot in the, in the mainstream media now with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, we're socialized into believing whiteness is supreme and blackness is vile and evil. And so when we're socialized, and this is going back centuries and it has its, its, it has its origins in uh, chattel slavery, which didn't only exist in Europe and in, in, in the United States, it also existed here in Canada. So to say that that stuff only happens to the south of us is, is totally wrong. We're embedded where, where, where we learn how to embrace white supremacy and anti-black racism. And so that seeps into everything we do and say, the appropriation of you know, black hip hop culture or um, you know, the, uh, the Euro um, authentic, of black hip hop culture and what that means. Um, you know, we embrace all that through the global dissemination of these, these messages uh, through media and what have you. And we come to see blackness as only a certain type, right? Either black bodies, black male bodies as dangerous, uh, black women as angry or, you know, boisterous or loose, for example. Um, and then all types of racism stems from that notion of white supremacy and anti-black racism. So then you have ideas whereby, you know, the model minority, where you see Asian and, and people, how they come to conceptualize uh, folks who are Asian, of Asian descent, as being the model minority. So a Chinese person must be good at math, can't be bad at math, right? So these whole ideas is how we're, we're socialized to believe. So we get away from thinking about racism as just bad and good. Um, and start to understand that that's how we're raised, then we can start to tackle it and not feel like, okay, I'm a good person, my intent is good, but this is how I'm socialized and I'm willing to unlearn what I've learned. So in a lot of the things you're talking about, are, like those are the definition of systemic, I think, correct? Yes, so, absolutely. Um, so now as a company, how do I address systemic racism? Because I feel like it's so much bigger than 
than my company. I feel like these things, like you said, these things have been taught since we were children and these things are ingrained in popular culture and they're, they're perpetuated by media. And, 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 and so how, do, how, is an, how, how, how can you as an individual organization or uh, if you are in a position of power in an organization, how, how can you start to address systemic racism? Okay, so there's a lot of, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot that needs to be done. So I'm gonna say just start with being uncomfortable. Start with feeling, you know what? Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just step into my, my fears. I'm gonna step into what I don't know. And I'm gonna learn how to be uncomfortable with, I'm gonna learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because truly that's when real learning happens. Um, when we're feeling all like, okay, we're protected and everything's fine, we're not willing to learn anything different. So start by being uncomfortable. Start also by dropping terms that don't mean anything. What does diversity mean if only you have, you know, a diverse workforce, but then on your leadership team, it's not diverse? Then you're really not doing inclusion work. You're just playing, how do you say, um, into terms like diversity. So I have a diverse workforce, but what does that mean for the people who really hold power and, and authority and influence in my organization? How am I being purposeful? How am I being a good, the term is out there, ally, but really it's about being a critical friend. How am I lifting those up as I climb myself and really not doing the work for them, but paving the way so that they can be heard? Um, there's research that shows that in a boardroom, if um, there's a, a woman, um, you know, trying to say something uh, in, in a boardroom with men, her ideas will go dismissed unless a man says it. We'll add race onto that, and it's even more so, um, you know, signified, whereby a black woman would say something, and it goes unnoticed, um, and they almost have to repeat it. So as someone in, in a powerful position in an organization, which is usually white male, you know, how do you recognize those signs to be able to say, uh-uh? You know, let's hear what this person has to say. You had an idea. Let's go with that. Let's talk about that. How then do you, right, lift as you climb? Um, it's not about tokenism. It's not about performative justice. It's about really wanting to make change. And it really does start on top. So if you don't know, how do you know, right? How do you ask those questions? And I'll say, you know, uh, there's a lot to be learned um, by even the youth today. Right? Yes, they're still uh, engaging in platforms that perpetuate racism and, um, you know, either subtly or not. But they are also starting to have critical dialogues that, you know, have been had for, for decades and, and centuries. They're, it's like a different, it's like a new movement again that's coming um, in a different wave. So I, I want to say embrace the youth and talk to them and, and have them kind of teach you what they know. It's not always gonna be the right thing, but they're asking the right questions. I mean, I have a 15 year old and she's a mixed race, right? Um, and we have these conversations all the time and she has these conversations as well with her, her white friends. And sometimes I, I, I listen to what they're saying or they share with me what they're saying and they have the insight that you know some of us adults don't have, right? Um, understand terms like privilege and white supremacy and white privilege. Um, and anti-racism and, and anti-black racism and racial hierarchy and all those things to do with it and acknowledge that it exists. Um, I'm almost going to be as, as bold as to say maybe even do away with terms that mean nothing such as um, 
and I don't want to say mean nothing, but don't really hold much meaning because not much has been done with it in terms of um, unconscious bias. So there was this whole wave of unconscious bias uh, uh, training that went out in organizations, and it really didn't move the needle forward. And so the question became, after unconscious bias, now what? Okay, we're all aware that we have unconscious bias, but what are we doing with it? We haven't really made any difference on top. Um, board of directors are still predominantly white male or white. Uh, affluent parts of Toronto or, or Canada are predominantly white, and the, the lesser affluent parts are not. So how have we really moved the needle? Um, so let's start embracing terms that, that will make a difference. Uh, let's, let's talk about people as white, black, um, Asian, South Asian. Like, let's use terms that, that they matter in how people get taken up and treated and either get rewarded or not rewarded, intentionally or not intentionally. So let's not be afraid to use terms and to call things out what it is. I always say to people, if something's racist, call it out. Don't call it unconscious bias because some people are bigoted and some people are racist and what they say can be that. We're not gonna move forward if we keep hiding. Um, and I think being very purposeful about all that, plus there's so much more, right? Um, employers can do to really say, no, I'm not just putting out these great statements. I'm actually going to live it and I'm going to bring my employees with me and I'm going to help lead the charge or get and surround myself with people that can help me do it. So purposeful. I mean, that's a good point. I think it's an important point because it's, it's one that, that openly um, can make a lot of, a lot of us feel uncomfortable is, is, you know, you say, don't just put out statements and absolutely don't just put out statements, but yeah. There's a, even putting out statements, you can be a, a somewhat scary thing because, you know, we, we put out a statement um, and, and openly we started, when we started the company, it was four white males. That's, we were friends and we started a company. There was no, certainly no reason that we happened to be four white males who were friends who started a company. We just wanted to start a company. Right. And so automatically if I hold up an ideal, it's very easy for somebody to point the finger at them and say, well, how, how dare you make that statement for white males who started a company? That can be very uncomfortable because even if I recognize the, the problem and I say that there's a systemic racism issue, right. I can't, there's certain things I can't change as of yet. I can't change the fact that we started the company. Right. So how pragmatically, how do you approach that? How do you, how do you say, okay, you know, how do you put yourself in that uncomfortable situation and not come off as hypocritical? Mm -hmm. I think by always keeping your foot on the gas, don't taking it off, showing that, you know what, I don't know. There are things I need to do. There's some heavy lifting I need to as a, and I'll, because you um, use your example, as a white male um, who has started a company, I have some, some influence. I have some power to do something. I don't know exactly everything. No one knows everything, but I'm going to find out and I'm going to align myself with those who can be on this journey with me to make things different. Um, remember, we're not talking about band-aid solutions. We're talking about, you know, roots lifting up those roots and throwing them out. 
Um, you probably heard the term in, in the media now where people are like, the system's not broken. It's doing exactly what it's intended to do. And usually they use it in the context of speaking about the judicial system, right? But if we look at just how our society has played out and who is disadvantaged predominantly on the basis of race, because we do live in a segregated society on the basis of race, for example, if we really interrogate all the things that have caused that, we're talking about roots that we need to now throw out and create new ones. That's not going to be easy, right? So knowing that you're not on this path alone, but you know or you see that something needs to be done, working in collaboration with those who are at different spaces with you to change things, right? Um, but I think the, the main thing is that you have to want the change because there are some people that benefit and, and receive privilege for other people not being privileged and for not having certain um, benefits, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if we truly want to be equitable and really embrace that as employers, how then do I say, okay, I want to make a change intentionally, not just a statement. I don't know a lot, but it's okay, but it's not just incumbent upon me to turn to folks who might know more and leave it to them. It's incumbent upon me with my privilege, with my connections, with my um, influence to be able to do some of this heavy lifting with the folks who are at different stages of it, but we all have a goal in mind and that's to make it better for the folks who it wasn't better for. And this is something we never talk about when we talk about racism and sexism and all the isms. We never talk about how it doesn't only dehumanize those who are the recipients of those um, discriminatory treatments, but it also dehumanizes those who perpetuate those discriminatory acts onto others, right? What does it say about my humanity when I treat somebody or when I benefit from the mistreatment of others or the, the barriers that others face and I benefit from that? So all this to say is anti-racism work is about not only establishing humanity for the quote unquote oppressed, but also for those who reap benefits from that oppression. It reestablishes your humanity as well. And we're all at different stages of it. I'm certainly not an expert. Um, I'm, st I'm on a journey as well. No one's an expert. We're just on different trajectories of this journey. And true allyship, or I'll replace that and say true critical friendship is about saying, you know what, let's do this. Let's do this. I don't know how we're going to do this, but we're going to do this. Are you with me? Let's go. Let's do it. And that's where... That's where employers really need to be intentional other than the, um, you know, the black square or the statement. Statements will start, but what are you going to do to push forward to really shatter those, those roots, right? So, so you've worked with a lot of, you know, obviously both in your education, in your job, and in the roles that you played with other companies. Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you get everyone to buy into these types of initiatives? Like how do you, because just as we've seen in this conversation now, there's, unfortunately, there's, there's barriers that have to do with, you know, the lens that you were raised in. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's not intention. It's, it's literally, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing on social media. I mean, maybe we should just keep social media out of it anyways and just <laughs> with real problems sometimes. Yeah. But that's the fear. And, and so then how do you address that with an organization? How do you get everyone to buy into it and not create more division and more, you know, not name calling, but you know, like, 
you know, for instance, it gets back to my last question, you know, yeah. how do I, as an individual say, I'm uncomfortable. I recognize I'm naive. I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I want to help make a change. Mm. Um, but how do you do that without, you know, some people won't be comfortable going to that area where they're, they're, they feel like they're open to criticism. So right. how do you get everyone back on that same page? You might not ever get everyone on that same page. And when people, so when I hear the term um, buying in uh, to, to inclusion or to equity or to diversity, I always want to interrogate that a little bit more. I always want to say, what do we mean by buy-in? Do we mean, how do we convince folks that, um, you know, giving certain opportunities to folks that might not look like myself or who might like, who, who look different to myself, um, giving those people opportunities. Why do I have to be convinced of that? You know, rhetorical question. Why do I have to be convinced of that? Was I convinced or did you have to convince me um, or do we have to convince people to have the current uh, demographic of leadership that we see throughout, and I'll use the Canadian context, throughout Canada? I don't think we had to be convinced of that, right? We just accepted that as normal. I think when we start to challenge what we normalize, then the terminology about buying in and convincing kind of will go away. And we start to normalize what diversity is all about. The problem is, in our socialization, we've normalized a certain standard in a certain positions, such as in, in organizations. That standard is predominantly male, predominantly white, predominantly Christian, predominantly English-speaking, predominantly right, heterosexual, et cetera, et cetera. We need to shatter that and stop saying that that's normal. That's not normal. That's what we have been taught to say is normal. And everything else needs to be, how do you say, designed or molded to emulate that in order to be rewarded and given opportunities and, and all that stuff. So we really need to shadow how we conceptualize normal and start to replace it with, okay, that's normal, that's different, that's normal, that's different, that's normal, that, right? And when we do that, then we can say, okay, it's not about buying in now. It's about how do we get the best people to do the best work for us in those top positions of influence? It's no longer about buying in. Is that the best person based on what they know, right? Is that the best person that's going to help our organization grow to that next stage, give the best ideas? be those, you know, steady people who will take us the next place. It's not, it shouldn't be about what they look like anymore or whether or not they have cer certain socioeconomic status, certain colors, certain, right, language. It should just be who is the best to give us what we need to move forward. So when we start to challenge how we conceptualize normalized notions of what is the right standard, then we no longer have to buy in. Then we no longer have to worry about, well, how then, is this person going to see me taking opportunities away from these people and that person? I'm not taking opportunities away from these people. I'm actually giving opportunities to more. And it's not about taking away. It's about let's give so all can benefit, right? Um, so we really need to start thinking differently about these things. It's not about getting rid of. It's about adding to and growing, right, on a different way and platform way of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And so here's, here's an example of you and I having a completely open conversation and me being completely uncomfortable with, a, with a, <laughs> my next question. Um, you know, you just said a moment ago, you said about getting the best person, regardless of what they look like, the best 
human being. And so, you know, what, what, what strikes me is that because this is such a systemic issue, mm-hmm. that maybe sometimes the bigger challenge is how even as an organization as, or an individual, do I ensure that everyone has an opportunity to be that best person, which doesn't always happen overnight. Like I'll give an example, uh, technology. Technology, the tech industry is famously um, male for one thing, and also, also famously white male. There's not always an equal pool of candidates in, in technology. It's just that you need to help address it sooner mm-hmm. than by the time they get to the job interview. Is that, you think that's an unfair thing to say? I, I don't, okay, so I'm gonna answer it this way. Yeah. Um, so we're, cause um, some of the social media platforms that I'm on um, that are predominantly, uh, you know, I'll say African-American cause they are American based and, and they are black Americans. Um, they talk about tech and they talk about tech within the African-American community right. and there's brilliant tech folks. So I guess when I hear things like that, I always say, well, where are we looking? Where are we starting from? Are we starting from a pool here or are we starting from a pool here? Are we being very intentional and in saying, okay, my pool is not very diverse as, as you've just articulated. It's not very diverse. How do I, how do I search out that diverse pool? Because they are out there, Right. And then where do I have to go and what platforms are going to lead me to that diverse pool of tech folks who are not male, as you said, and white, as you said, right? How then do I bring that, those folks into the world that I'm creating here so that I can have, right, diversity represented? Right. So that becomes then a, a, a practical thing. This is great. This is a good practical example of how a company can try to address this because it's no longer then about saying, oh, we did a posting. Right. It's saying, where did you do the posting? And are you, make, are you doing targeted postings that try to find, that look beyond maybe where you've traditionally done your postings? Is that, is that, right. is that a fair answer? That's right. And what it's, so the, the term, it's outreach, right? What are you doing beyond posting, as you said? And what are you doing to reach out to those communities that you don't typically would get from a normal posting or a regular posting, right? How do I get into those communities? And now with social media, it's a lot. It, you just got to search them out. And, and then you'll, you'll be in, in spaces where you have more diversity or diverse bodies um, from which to pull based on your profession, um, you know, they're out there. They are definitely out there. Uh, decades ago, um, you know, when women were not in leadership roles as they are now, and again, it's probably a certain type of woman, but just, you know, talking generally. Um, and I think actually I heard this just a few years ago. I was watching a special. Um, I think it was David Letterman. And he was being asked about, um, you know, why is it, I think it was writers, or why aren't there more women writers or what have you? And he said, well, they just don't want it. They just don't want it. And, and someone said, no, they do want it. And then they, out, they are out there. So I always say, it's not that they're not there. It's just that the right outreach isn't happening to get them. And really, that's the whole intentional and purposeful act, um, aspect of it. It's going out there and getting them, going out there and seeking them. Um, I went to, um, it, it, uh, about two years ago, I was in Manhattan for a, a diversity um, conference. Um, and it had, you know, uh, 
celebrities, politicians in America who it was it was put uh, put on by Forbes. And one of the uh, CEOs of one of the companies that were there, he said, you know, I specifically wanted to hire a woman for this particular uh, senior uh, leadership position. And so my recruiters kept giving me, you know, all males, males. I said, don't give me any male re resumes. I only want female resumes. He was very purposeful about it. And so what did he get? He got all female resumes. And from that, he was able to hire a woman. So it's all about being very purposeful at every step of the, of, of the phase of recruitment in this example. Um, and, and just extrapolating that to all aspects of, of, of leadership and what we do. Okay, well, this is obviously a much bigger conversation and topic than we're going to be able to handle in a quick video series, but <laughs> I really appreciate uh, this conversation. I think it's a, it's a tough conversation to have because it, it, does, it does put you in a place of discomfort, but um, I really appreciate it, and I, it's been a really open conversation, so thanks so much, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for, uh, for, for asking the questions. Great questions. Uh, and so if anybody wants to reach out to you uh, to, to learn more, to, to get your advice, wh where should they do that? Um, they can follow me on Twitter um, or reach out to me um, yeah, on Twitter at, uh, at E. Charles Wrights. Um, that's, that's my Twitter stuff. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today and uh, hope we talk soon. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Dig In. If you want more information about Dig Insights or Upside, please check us out on LinkedIn or at our websites at diginsights.com or upside.com. If you have any ideas for future episodes or would like to be a guest, please feel free to direct message me through the LinkedIn app.